Good morning. We're working our way through the chapters 2 through 4 of Hebrews, as we've been saying, just to kind of orient ourselves to the state of the individuals to whom the letter is written. The years have not been kind to these Jewish Christians. Um, the early, all for one and all, and one for all days of early Christianity in Jerusalem had been eroded by a couple fams, famines and a couple persecutions. And forced to leave Israel, these Jewish Christians have forfeited both neighborhood and livelihood. And it's left them with difficult questions. Uh, is God unaware of our sufferings? Or is he aware of our sufferings and he just doesn't care? Uh, in addressing their disillusionment, the writer of this letter focuses their attention on the character of God and two things that we've been describing as two lenses of a binocular or a pair of glasses, both which are necessary in order to see God clearly, sovereignty and sympathy. Sovereignty and sympathy. If God is great but not good, sovereign but not sympathetic, that is not going to do it. If he's sympathetic but not sovereign, if he's good but not great, that's not going to do it either. He has to be both. And with that in mind, in the third chapter, the writer uh, moves on through his argument. Uh, says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses and Jesus faithfully discharged similar duties. They conveyed messages from God to people and conveyed messages from people to God. So they were interfaces between God and people, conveying messages to people from God, conveying messages to God from people. God uses interfaces when revealing himself, when you think of interface. It's a face between two faces, a face that is inter between two. And Moses and Jesus were interfaces. That seems to be the way God reveals himself. He reveals himself through a flesh and blood representative. And Moses and Jesus are the two primary ones. They reflected the face of God to people. And while they discharged similar duties, their impact differed. Writer writes in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful 
over God's house as a son. Jesus, Moses, excuse me, is referred to as a servant. The kind of, there's two words for servants. One could be a slave. This word for servant can't be a slave. It's, it is a free person, a free man who's offering service to a superior. So he's not a slave, but he is a free man who is offering service to a superior. And that's how Moses is described, and Jesus is described as a son. And the impact of a servant and a son are very different. It says in John 8, it's in your worship folder, 35 to 36, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's different impacts that can be experienced if the interface is a servant or the interface is a son. If the interface is a servant, we don't have the ability, because of their interfacing, to have a permanent place in the family, because servants don't have a permanent place in the family. They're not like children. If a servant performs well, they maintain their place in the home. If they don't, they forfeit that place. A son is different. And so um, there's a temporary versus a permanent bestowal. If Moses is the representative, he can bring us temporary access because he's a servant. But Jesus, as a son, gives us permanent access. And there's a sense of security versus insecurity. If you have to continue to perform, in order to maintain your place in the family. I think you can understand that would feel insecure. I bet you've asked this question. Have I done enough? Have I been obedient enough? Have I performed well enough? Am I included? Am I excluded? These are questions that that occur to us. And and what Jesus then gives us is a platform upon which to be secure. John Wesley talked about um, when he came to America from England in the 18th century, he said this, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. And he did all kinds of things. He was in England involved in seminary, in social outreach. He studied the Greek Bible, knew it backwards and forwards, and came to America to be a missionary in Georgia. And en route, he experienced a disturbing sense of alarm when it seemed that the boat he was on was going to going to kill him. He was going to go down with it. Uh, there were some individuals on the boat who were singing hymns, and he felt the pulse of his spirituality, and he said, something's wrong. And then he read through Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and understood what it means that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is what he felt. Something settled down inside, and here's what he said. I ever had the faith of a servant, but now I have the faith of a son. I ever had the faith of a servant, but now I have the faith of a son. And there was a warmth associated with it. Um, 
Moses and Jesus differ in how permanently they link us to God. They also differ in how clearly they reflect God. Moses reveals God, but the revelation is kind of an analog signal. It's, it's okay. You can see some things, but it's not a digital signal. Jesus' transmission of God is digital. It is He is the exact representation of God's nature. Um, it says in John 1, it's in your worship folder, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one, John writes, has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read an article I wrote from John chapter 1, in which it talks about this. The reason I'm going to read it is that this is a very surprising statement. No one has ever seen, I'm going to just read through and just listen or follow along. No one has ever seen God. This statement raises some questions. What about divine appearances in the Old Testament? Take Moses, for example. Didn't he meet with God on Mount Sinai? Didn't he see God? Reads in Exodus 20, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And then it goes on a little bit later. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Old Testament accounts suggest that God came down on the mountain and that Jewish leaders saw God. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, suggests otherwise. That's what it says in Acts 7. Stephen, when he's about to be stoned, here's what he said. He, Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us the law that was put into effect through angels. Exodus indicates that Moses saw God. In Acts, Stephen indicates that Moses spoke to an angel, which is true. If you look in Exodus... It does not indicate that an angel spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. By the burning bush, it happened. So which is true? Did he see God or did he not? Was it an angel? And historically, kings sent emissaries to speak on their behalf. Even in our day, it's common for heads of state to dispatch ambassadors to act in their stead. When an American ambassador speaks to a foreign ruler, it is as if the president himself is speaking. The ambassador has the authority to represent the president. 
It's reasonable to conclude, I think, again, this is my take on it. It's my spin. You might not grieve. That's okay. Uh, you'll see someday. I'm just, <laughs> sorry, I'm just, just kidding. Uh, but take a crack at it. Um, it's reasonable to conclude that the Israelites' frightening encounter on Mount Sinai was with angels, not with God himself. If angels functioned in this manner, if they were given temporary authority to serve as God's ambassadors, then the Israelites' frightening encounter on Mount Sinai was with angels, not with God himself. It's true, then, that prior to Jesus' incarnation, no one had ever seen God. Jesus Christ, God the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Okay, What does this mean? And regardless, I think this is a statement that stands for every Christian. We can only see God clearly through Jesus' eyes. Only he has made God known. God cannot be, then, a hybrid of Mount Sinai severity and Mount Calvary kindness. God is not an amalgam of Old Testament law and New Testament grace and truth. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we see God reflected through the eyes of God's angels. They know God as master. That is why their depiction of him is distant and severe. In the New Testament, we see God reflected through the eyes of God's Son. Jesus knows God as Father. That's why his depiction of him is intimate and familiar. What does this mean for us? God is who Jesus says he is. He is our Father. Two messengers. And two messages. We come in, in the text. We'll read in just a little bit. There's an old covenant message spoken from Mount Sinai, and there's a new covenant message inaugurated by Christ from Mount Calvary, and they are very different. They're very different. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' faith because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day. Whenever Moses is read, 
a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Old Covenant message is described in this way. And the characteristic are shocking. Shocking. It's called the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Describes what its impact is. Death and condemnation. That's hard to swallow. That is what this passage is indicating. And the new covenant message in very different words is the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness. Then, if you put your finger on, what is it that the Spirit of God would bring to our attention? What is it the Spirit of God brings to our attention? You're doing something wrong. What the Spirit does? Is that the primary influence of the Spirit? The Spirit is associated with the new covenant here. The ministry of the Spirit has to do with helping us understand the present covenant by, that God is honoring and by which he understands or expresses himself. Um, in the Bible, God seems, seems to some degree to wear two faces. The face reflected in the Old Testament seems different than the face reflected in the New. Would you agree? I find that in China when we were there. Chinese, they had a very difficult time, the ones I spoke to, understanding the Old Testament because it seemed the severity, the death. It was hard for them. And so how can it be? Does God change? Can't. God doesn't change, but his glory does. But his glory does. So what the, it helps us to understand the Hebrew and Greek words for glory. The Hebrew word translated glory and the Greek word translated glory. Again, one's Hebrew, one's Greek. And they are translated by the same English word, but they have very different senses. The Hebrew word for glory and the Greek word for glory have very different pictures. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And the basic idea of the word has to do with weight. So when applied to objects, it it refers to something that's heavy. If you're trying to pick something heavy up, you're trying to pick something up. Boy, that thing was kabod. Oh, man, I just... Oh. When applied to objects, it's something weighty. When applied to body parts, it refers to something that feels heavy and unresponsive. Um, I was at the University of Minnesota, and a guy there who was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I was on staff as well, tells a story about falling asleep on his arms. So he fell asleep, he slept like this, and so he woke up, and his alarm clock went off. 
And so he just could not move his arms. They were heavy enough. They were kabod. So here's what he had to do. He, he, he just had to kind of, he had to kind of just swing his arm out and, and, and get the alarm clock off the bed. And they had to get down and, and, and do one of these. <laughs> Why did he have to do it? Because his arms were kabod. They were weighty and heavy and unresponsive. Uh, when applied to people, Kabod refers to someone who is heavy laden with possessions or to a ruler who is very authoritative and strong, whose word has impact and power. That's Kabod. The New Testament word for Greek, the Greek word for glory in the New Testament is doxa. Very different word. It comes from the root word to think. It's to think. It's the opinion that one person has about another person. Um, one's estimation of another person. One's valuation of another person. You might see, again, distinguishing between the two, the Old Testament word kabod has a sense of evaluation at some level. The New Testament word doxa has the image not of evaluation, but valuation. So, how does, let's apply these to God. The Old Testament glory is heavy. Feels heavy. That's what Jesus says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What Jesus says is that the Individuals at his time in positions of spiritual leadership put heavy loads on people's shoulders. That's not the problem. Because the old covenant is heavy. It's heavy. The problem, Jesus points out, is that those individuals who are interfaces, who claim to be representatives of God, even when the message is heavy, their mercy is what allows the message to feel a little bit lighter. That's what we find with Jesus. He brings divine sympathy. That's something that needs to be in place. The impact of the Old Testament is crushing, and it's to be attenuated to be by somebody sympathetic. And Jesus was that influence. That's what is required. Um, Old Testament glory is heavy. New Testament glory is light. And here's what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Old Testament glory is heavy. New Testament glory is light. Old Testament glory makes a fading impression. A temporary impression. What it says in Second Corinthians, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And we've described it. What, and what Moses is aware of, that as he comes and his face is glowing, and we'll indicate why, because glory is the radiation of God's 
expressed will and purpose towards an individual. Glory shines and glory transforms the person upon whom it shines. Two things to know about glory. Glory shines and glory transforms. Glory shines and glory transforms. And it shines, it's not from God into the universe, you know, you know, we think that God's, it just kind of radiates out. God's glory doesn't just dissipate, it is focused. It's, it's God looking at you. That's glory. That's looking. It shines and glory is the radiation of God's relational purposes. It shines. Glory transforms those upon whom it shines. How are we changed? By glory. By basking in the glory that shines upon us. That's how Christian change occurs. Glory changes people. And what it says, all covenant glory changes people, but the change is fading. Um, and what we find, there was the glory that emanated from Moses' face. If you looked at him when he just comes from God, gee, that looks like 90 watts. You know, that's, oh, yeah. Is it me or is he less shiny? It looks like 85 watts now. And it, is it me? Is, is, is he, is he not as bright as he was? And when, when I first saw him, I couldn't even look at him. I mean, I was just like this. It was like looking at a welding flash. But I, I don't have a problem looking at him now. And what Moses did, again, he's not being deceptive, but he is being deceptive. <laughs> he goes, um, Okay, now we're good. <laughs> well, I guess it must be staying constant. And it wasn't staying constant. It was fading. You know why it was fading? Because it was supposed to fade. You know why it was supposed to fade? Because the old covenant was supposed to fade. It was never meant to be permanent because God knew that he would send Jesus with the new covenant. You can't have the old covenant and the new covenant at the same time. They are, you can't mix them. They're different kinds of covenants. The old covenant was meant to be in place for a time. And the new covenant forever. Um, says, and referring in verse 14, their minds were hardened for this day when they read the old covenant, that veil remains unlifted. It's very common in our day. I hear it. For people to indicate, no, the old covenant is still in effect. The old covenant is still in effect. No, it isn't. Jesus said, this is the covenant. In, this is the covenant. This is the covenant in my blood. If the new covenant is in place, the old one is obsolete and passing away. And that's because it was supposed to pass away. Um, only through Christ is it taken away. You know what it means to be a Christian? With respect to Moses, this is what it means to be a Christian. 
to be able to see the face of Moses? The glory is gone. God does not speak through Moses. Now, who does he speak through? Jesus Christ. He speaks through Jesus, the Son, not the servant. And that's good news. The glory was fading. This is why Moses put a veil over his face. Um, this is what it means to have a veil over the heart. And it's to assume that God is an amalgam of Calvary kindness and Sinai severity. And he is not. I told you about this. There was a seminary about maybe 15 years ago, I think. And there were 15 or 16 students in there. And this one individual that I knew. And the professor asked a question. And something to the effect on this side of the cross are the curse provisions in the Old Covenant relevant for Christians? Are the curse provisions of the Old Covenant relevant for Christians? And 15 of 16 individuals in the seminary class said, yes. Off by a covenant. It's off by a covenant. One said, no. No. Why did they indicate that it was still relevant? You know what the problem was? This. A veil. The veil is still in place. They still think the glory is emanating from Moses' face. It isn't. It's radiating from Jesus' face. And there's a different sense for that. New Testament, Old Testament glory makes a fading impression. New Testament glory makes a lasting impression. What it says in 2 Corinthians 3, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what would you imagine? Glory shines and glory transforms. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Because glory transforms. Because it transforms. So if you want to be transformed, look at the glory that transforms. New covenant glory. Understand that's how God is operating. And when, in, when individuals, they try to mix it up saying, oh, no, 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 no. That's still, God still holds, say, eh, off by a covenant. You don't need to say it. Just say it in your mind. Just be clear in your mind. Just be clear in your mind. Okay, Mike, we talk about this. We're talking about this, Mike. You know, it's getting kind of repetitive. You know, you talk about this stuff. Really, Mike, aren't we kind of, we kind of making much ado about nothing? Shouldn't we really be talking about some other things that are more practical? Yeah, I, I get that. Uh, is this really important? Absolutely. Because glory shines and glory transforms. We were meant to be changed by glory, either skin deep, short lived change, or heart deep, long lived 
change. Where does skin-deep, short-lived change come from? Looking at the new or looking at the old? At the old. And why does that happen? Because that's what's supposed to happen with the old. Skin-deep, short-lived. Never meant to be permanent. Where does heart-deep, long-lived change come from? Looking at the new. Because that's what it's supposed to do. So my, it, what I would encourage us to do, keep looking at the new. And if somebody shines the old covenant glory on you, just be very kind, maybe. Yeah, be kind. You don't need to be mean. Because they just, because they don't see it. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that's what God's saying to me. I don't think he's saying, do this and live. In fact, it's different. Do this and live, the, God, the law commands. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It gives me wings. Do this and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Um, how can you tell if you're being transformed? There is good. And specifically, here's what it says. Like Sheila Schmidt. Throw it out there. Amen. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> no. Ephesians 3. This God's plan was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The word boldness is the word parousia. We talked about parousia. It is the freedom of speech enjoyed by a citizen in a democracy. That's parousia. And so when you're at a public meeting in Rome at the time, and somebody's saying something, and you say, mm, you know what, I, I could, do you clarify that? I don't, no, I don't understand. That's parousia. It's the freedom to speech, freedom to speak in a public assembly. It's also the openness between friends expressed in plain speaking. If we're friends, then, and if we're close, I can get right to the heart of it. I don't have to beat around the bush. Hey, can we talk? Can we talk? Here's what I see. And I'm not telling you this because I'm a stranger. I'm telling you because I'm a friend. That's parousia. And parousia is also something that's associated with the liberating action of God, which allows somebody to enter his presence and speak freely. That's what parousia is. So how do you know if you're being transformed? You're saying real things to God, not just right things. Real things, not just right things. And when you've got these things in your heart, God, I'm both afraid and I'm not afraid. Which one is it? It's both. God, I'm, I feel this and that. I feel that and this. I believe and I don't believe. I don't believe and I believe. That's being wholehearted because our hearts are not wholehearted. 
And so to be wholehearted with God is to reflect honesty with him, not pretense. It's to say, God, I'm dealing with this and this. Good, that's what's happening in your heart. And we cling to that, and that's what is indicative of someone who's being transformed. They're authentic. They see real things to God. They know themselves and they express that to him. Um, It's what it says in the last verse in the text that we started. It says, we are his house, which is his community, his people. If indeed we hold fast our confidence. Guess what that word confidence is? If we hold fast our confidence, same word, parousia. Hold on to parousia and don't let go. Don't let go. People will try to make you, they'll try to take it. No, you shouldn't tell God that. Yes, you should. It's more important that you be authentic with God, saying real things to him, not just right things. Because when you understand God's glory, you start over time to become more comfortable with it. That's why we don't talk about it every week, but regularly we'll talk about covenant. My hope is this. It's not going to be quick change because our brains don't change fast. We have this way of thinking about God that's a mix of new and old, and it's not going to change now. What's going to happen? We keep on talking about the old versus the new, and you're going to learn to distinguish the old from the new. And that's happening. It happens slowly. And as you do so, your image of God starts to shift. You start to find yourself a little more comfortable in your communication with him. You say real things to him. You are becoming transformed. Transformed. Um, Hold on to this. Get a grip on speaking freely by looking at his covenant. And once you get that grip, don't let go. Devin, come on up. Father, thank you for your glory, and you created us in a, in a way that we are changed by it, and either in a temporary or a permanent way. Would you continue to clarify our focus on what you expressed to us so that we could stand in the, the radiance of new covenant glory, and as we do so over time, slowly, progressively, as we behold it, we're transformed by it. And we can reflect it to others so that they can see it as well. Continue to reveal yourself to us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.